Welcome to the penultimate event of the new Criterion's 40th anniversary season. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. Roger Kimball very much regrets that he could not join us here tonight. He extends his great thanks to Douglas and to the friends of the new Criterion and the young friends for seeing the new Criterion through what has truly been a banner year. Thank you. Soon, you will receive notice of our spring fundraising campaign. Tole lege, here is the opportunity to renew your friends' membership. The new Criterion is entering its fifth decade of publication. This experiment in critical audacity would not exist without your support. And please mark your calendar for two dates. On Thursday, June 9, we will gather for our end-of-season office party with Encounter Books. And on Thursday, September 29, we will host our next annual Circle Lecture. The speaker for this special event will be our next visiting critic, a champion of open discourse on campus, and now a martyr to the academic mob, Joshua Katz, who until this week was a member of the Classics Department at Princeton University. I am proud to say that Josh will be joining our masthead next season. And we have these save the date cards to remind you about those two events. And now on to tonight's speaker, another warrior for civilization. What's important to know about Douglas Murray is not just that he writes urgent cultural books. The important thing to know is that he also gets people to read his urgent cultural books. <laughs> Lots of people. The War on the West, the book we honor tonight, debuted on the bestseller list there it is, top 20 in the New York Times, a thumb in the eye for our paper of wreckage. And this is not unusual. Douglas has a history. His first book, Bosey, a biography of Alfred Lord Douglas, Lord Alfred Douglas was a bestseller when it was published in 2000, when he was still an undergraduate at Oxford. Douglas's book on the strange death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, published by Bloomsbury in 2017, then spent almost 20 weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list and was a number one bestseller in nonfiction. His book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, became another bestseller when it was published in 2019 and a book of the year for the Sunday Times. In our age of badness, Douglas proves there is still some sanity, at least among intelligent book buyers. Douglas's success is more than heartwarming for our side. It is vital. With an urgent conservative cultural message, he is reaching new audiences, wider audiences, international audiences, and he is driving a vital conversation. He appears with Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson. At the same time, he writes for the pages of The Spectator and The New Criterion. Douglas's most recent piece for us appeared in April, I hope you saw it, with an appreciation of a posthumous anthology of Roger Scruton's. Douglas is also an author Ford Encounter, which republished his book, Neoconservatism, Why We Need It, in 2006. <laughs> Do we still need it in 2022? We can ask him that question. <laughs> <laughs> the War on the West now lays it all out in 320 harrowing pages. Quote, in recent years, it has become clear that there is a war going on, a war being waged remorselessly against all the roots of the Western tradition, and against everything good that the Western tradition has produced. 
Douglas takes us through controversies on race, China, history, reparations, religion, gratitude, and culture. In the defense of our culture, he is a frontline soldier. I have seen it firsthand. Last week, I recommended Douglas's book as my critic's pick on the New Criterion's Critics Notebook. As we put this recommendation out on social media, the volume of response we received exceeded everything else by an order of 10. Some people cheered for it, others denounced it in ways that I will not quote. This is just a day in the life of an author in the arena fighting the good fight. I am grateful Douglas has taken time out from his busy book tour to join the friends of the new Criterion tonight. We have copies for you all. You won't want to leave without one, especially after you hear our speaker. Please welcome Douglas Murray. Well, thank you so much, James. What a pleasure it is to be here and uh, to be able to celebrate the new Criterion. Um, I think it's almost 20 years, maybe 18 years, since I remember first doing a conference with the new Criterion. And uh, James mentioned that um, the most recent piece I wrote for the magazine was on uh, this posthumous anthology of some of Roger Scruton's work. And actually, that first, um, that first uh, new Criterion conference, it was, I think, in 2004 or so, uh, and Roger and Sophie had just bought a house in Virginia, sight unseen, and, um, and were, were doing it up, inviting me to stay with them ahead of the conference. And, and uh, uh, Roger was nothing if not practical, and th there were guests due to come, including the local judge, uh, for Saturday night, and, and, and the house hadn't been really done up yet at all. Um, and, and among other things, the rooms needed painting. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Roger put me to work with him, and we, we painted the dining room. We painted the entire dining room the morning that the judge was due for dinner, uh, whilst he tried to explain Heidegger to me. And it was really, uh, they've sold the house since, but I wish I could revisit, and I have very happy memories of that room. Every dab of paint was uh, a question mark somewhere in my mind. Um, but anyhow, no, I'm a great fan of the new Criterion and, and really admire all the work uh, you've done. Kind enough to mention um, my, my book for Encounter, which sadly did not trouble the bestseller list, um, <clears throat> but I wish it had. But, um, but yes, I've, I've been um, lucky enough to be published uh, now for some 22 years. And um, I suppose the book I've, um, I've just published, The War in the West, uh, with Harper Collins, I'm delighted my editor, Eric Nelson's here tonight, um, is really a sort of culmination of three books that I've been thinking about and writing in recent years. The first was a book called The Strange Death of Europe that James mentioned, which is about immigration. And I was came about really because I was covering the 2015 migration crisis in Europe firsthand, and I, I kept having these thoughts as I was in the various migrant camps and bits of North Africa and Middle East and then the bits of Southern Europe where people were coming in. I kept having the same sort of thoughts, which was that, that it wasn't surprising that this was happening, but it was surprising that people were allowing it to happen from the European side. It wasn't surprising that the developed world wanted to move to the de the developing world wanted to move to the developed world. What was interesting was why the developed world decided that borders, for instance, on that occasion didn't matter. And um, um, I, I wrote this book on immigration, and it, as you mentioned, it spent twenty twenty. Uh, weeks in the bestseller lists and was translated into every European language, among others. And I was, I was sort of amazed because I thought after I'd write this book, I'd, I'd be dead in some way, I'd, reputationally, if not actually. And, and instead, I was still alive. And so I thought, well, well um, maybe I should find every other taboo and jump all over them. 
And so I did. Um, and that was my book, The Madness of Crowds, uh, where I talked about all the gender nonsense and much more. And um, uh, But anyhow, but even with The Madness of Crowds, I wasn't quite onto the subject which I realized I really wanted to write about. And, and that subject is really the subject of this book, The War on the West. And that is um, something I suppose I've been thinking about all my life, and I know many people in this room have as well, which is why we've ended up in this situation in the West where everything is good so long as we haven't produced it. Um, and everything that we have produced is bad, irrevocably tainted, um, tarnished. Um, so that now, and increasingly, as I show in the book, in recent years, everything in the Western past has to be looked at through the same remorseless lenses, the lens of racism, slavery, colonialism. Um, as I show in the book, this is... Uh, both an understandable uh, correction to one version of Western history and now clearly an overcorrection. Uh, I talked about this similarly in The Madness of Crowds, the way in which, in which movements think that they're correcting historic injustice but can't resist the temptation to overcorrect. Uh, so it's not enough to say, let's highlight some bad things, it's to say, let's only talk about the bad things. Um, let's only talk about uh, the negatives. And as I try to show, uh, this has now reached this extraordinary fever pitch where I think we're, we are in the midst of a cultural revolutionary moment in the West where all of the underpinnings are being hacked away at. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. In, in the um, uh, city we're in, um, which I've been pleased to make my home for the last year, um, by the way, I'm the only person who moved to New York last year. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, very nice. Um, most of my friends left at the same time, and I, I tried not to draw any conclusions from that. But, um, but, uh, but in, in this city, just last uh, November, um, in the uh, downtown, the state council chamber, um, uh, the council voted to remove the statue of Thomas Jefferson. And the statue was, sure enough, it was... Uh, uh, as reported in by my colleagues at the New York Post, it was uh, taken down, crated up, wheeled through a back door, and it had been there since the 1830s. And uh, one of the members of the council said, well, Thomas Jefferson doesn't represent our values. I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting assertion to make if you're American. <laughs> and it begs quite a few follow-on questions. Um, <laughs> If Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers don't represent your value, who does? Um, uh, it's the same with George Washington. Uh, it's the same with the history of Columbus uh, in this country, where it seems to be now the received wisdom that would be better if Columbus had never found the Americas or had gone home and said, large amount of real estate with no potential. Um, the founders have been uh, done over one by one. Uh, the South Side in the Civil War, obviously, but the North as well. We see um, where crowds don't take down statues of Abraham Lincoln, as they did in Portland, whilst I was there a couple of years ago. Uh, the authorities remove Lincoln statues preemptively, as the authorities did in Boston last year. Um, if, if, if you take out Abraham Lincoln, as one of his biographers said to me when I was researching this book, you've basically taken out America. Um, if you don't have these stories, if you don't have heroes anymore, um, you have nothing to unite around. And actually, all the discussions about left and right, Democrat, Republican, become... Um, impossibly more fractious and unmendable because you can't agree on anything about your past, not even whether or not you're any good or ever did any good. Um, this same thing has been done in my own country birth in the UK. We've had in recent years the same uh, strange cultural revolution 
attempted against all historical figures in the UK, from naval heroes like Lord Nelson uh, to uh, even the man who 20 years ago was voted our greatest Britain, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill's statue uh, quite often now has to be protected by a steel box in its um, place in Parliament Square in Westminster because, among other things, Winston Churchill is accused of holding some Victorian values. Um, and as I say, I have terrible news for his critics, which is that, that he was born in Victorian England. And the likelihood, of, if he had Victorian values born in America in the 2020s, well, that would be interesting. But it's not surprising that he had some views that we don't agree with today. But nevertheless, the critics go over and over the, the things they don't agree with, the things that make him absolutely irredeemable. And um, the fact that nobody did more individually to stop the rise of fascism or the advance of fascism seems not even to count in the sort of positive side of the ledger book. It's as if if you get one negative mark against you, the whole thing is over. Um, I mentioned the way in which this is done towards the uh, religious tradition in the West, but it's the same thing with the, the uh, secular tradition. The secular tradition of the West is, is being taken apart in the same way. Every philosopher in the West, and I say this obviously to a well-enlightened and informed audience, every single philosopher in the West from the two, last two and a half thousand years has been done over through the same remorseless game. The Washington Post two uh, years ago uh, denounced Aristotle as, quote, the grandfather of scientific racism. <laughs> One of the marks against Aristotle is that Charles Murray once said that he admired him. <laughs> <laughs> Again, um, you've got to watch out for that, any philosophers in the audience. Two and a half thousand years from now, if somebody says they like you and you've not, they haven't got all lockstep the right views, you're toast. Um, doesn't matter your contributions to Western thought um, or philosophy. Everybody more recently has undergone the same thing. Uh, every philosopher, strangely enough, of the Enlightenment, every Enlightenment philosopher has now been done over for the same thing, accused of living in a time where racism existed, where colonialism existed, slavery existed, and much more. David Hume's name has been taken off all buildings associated with him in his native Scotland because of one footnote in one of his essays, which all Hume scholars know about, all deplore, and which by no means represents his thought. The statue of Voltaire has currently disappeared in Paris. It's been attacked so many times uh, because it's alleged of uh, his uh, um, investment in the slave trade. By the way, of course, Voltaire in Candide gives us one, gives us one of the great humanist denunciations of slavery. But that's, that's, that's nothing. Uh, if you've done one bad thing, you're over. So, so Voltaire has been attacked so many times that the authorities in Paris have now taken him away and no one knows where he is. Uh, Voltaire has entered a witness protection program, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and, um, and if anyone hears of his whereabouts, do say... Um, but this has happened with absolutely everybody, except a few figures who coincidentally don't seem to get given this treatment. And uh, I, I give a couple of examples in the book. Uh, the New Criterion has been extraordinarily um, um, resilient and constant in its condemnations of some of the people I, I criticize. So this isn't all news to, to, to you or to, or to readers. But um, uh, Michel Foucault, you would have thought with the recent revelations about his private life, might be undergoing some revision. No, the fourth volume of his sex, History of Sexuality is out now. Uh, didn't, didn't get disturbed by the, uh, um, I won't say what the, the allegations were. You can read them yourselves. Um, but uh, one of the other people who I found interesting because he's not cancelled is, it was, was Karl Marx. Uh, um, Karl Marx, indeed, has got statues going up to him. Um, uh, t uh, two years ago, in his native Germany, a new statue went up to Karl Marx, uh, paid for by the benevolent munificence of the Communist Party of China. 
Um, uh, but as I say in, in The War on the West, if you look through Karl Marx's correspondence or through his, uh, indeed, his public writings in, in the American newspapers in the 1850s and so on, you'll see many things. From his public writings, you'll see that he had horrible views about slavery and colonialism. He failed every single test of modern standards. Um, but in his private correspondence, he was also a vicious, vicious racist, even by the standards of his time. He routinely uses the N-word. He usually hyphenates it with the word Jew. He's viciously anti-Semitic. Um, I've written about this in the book. It's come out a bit more than perhaps it did before. I talk about his letters to Engels and quite how vicious and unpleasant Marx was. And one of the newspapers in the UK, the Daily Mail, did a big splash on this. And so some Marxist scholars came out of the woodwork and they did their defense of their great, their great hero. And what was their defense? The first one was, he was a man of his time. <laughs> You mean like Jefferson? <laughs> you mean like everyone else who's dead? Uh, uh, because, of course, I point out the, the worst thing you can be is a dead white male. Uh, first for being white, second for being male, and third for the absolutely unpardonable crime of dying. And what kind of loser would do that, really? Uh, uh, but, um, but yes, so, so, so um, they say, first of all, well, Marx was a man of his time. And the second thing uh, they've said, uh, the Marxists who've come out after this book has come out, is they say, we don't go to him for his views on race. We go to him for his economic theories. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, nobody goes to the writings of Voltaire for investment advice for the slave trade. <laughs> Um, so there is a wild double standard going on. There is a wild um, um, evisceration of everything in our past. And, and I'll, I'll just make a couple of points before I come to you for some questions, because um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to say, and I don't want to uh, waffle on. But um, two things in particular. The first is the way in which, and again, a new criterion has been superb in highlighting this, the way in which this is now ransacking everything in our culture so that nothing is safe from this remorseless, monotone attack um, I was just uh, talking earlier to an artist friend here about the way in which this happens at, at collections like the Tate in London. Uh, the Tate in London has closed for the foreseeable future uh, uh, the room in which a mural by Rex Whistler sits because it is accused of being pro-slavery. The mural in question depicts an unhappy child slave in an Arcadian idyll. And Rex Whistler clearly was saying in 1921 that even in Arcadia this happened evil exists. That's all he was saying. And a hundred years later, this mural is closed, and the Tate Gallery has said that it is a racist mural by an artist who was a racist. Rex Whistler died on his first day in action in Normandy in 1944. And it is an obscenity of our age that every single custodian of the arts, the people who are meant to, and it's not just the Tate, I could do institution after institution, so many institutions that are meant to be safeguarding our culture have decided instead that they are basically meant to stand judge, jury, and executioner over it. Always, always with the same condemnations. Finally, let me just make, make a point um, which I think is crucial, which is this. Um, I, I do these interlude chapters in the middle of this because I, apart from anything else, I needed to give myself and the reader a breather. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in recent years uh, has been... Uh, about resentment. This is something that Roger Scruton and others wrote about a lot as well. Um, the culture of resentment is, is an extraordinary thing because it speaks to such depths. And it is being offered uh, by so many people and so many institutions in the public square. And um, sometimes this seems to me to be the human instinct which is at the source of the problem I'm trying to 
pull apart and fight against. Um, but it's not enough when you come across a deep instinct like resentment simply to respond to it by a couple of uh, policy tweaks or something like that. You need to try to respond to it at a level of equal depth. And resentment is difficult because, as I think everyone here knows, um, people can fall into having lives of resentment, whatever their circumstances and whatever their origins. I would suspect that uh, everybody here knows somebody who seems to have it all, or at least a lot, but lives a life of deep resentment. You know, their sister got something they thought they were meant to have, or their cousin once said something to them, or endless, endless iterations of this. But I would have thought that it's also possible that everybody here knows of somebody at least they've come across in their lives who seems to have very little, and yet lives a life of gratitude, charity, benevolence, kindness, and much more. So this is something that crosses all socioeconomic strata, all racial groups, all social groups, and much more. And what I suggest is that we try, not only I give some specific things we should try, in my view, to do, but also the, the deep, deep need in our culture to turn our culture around from a culture of resentment into a culture of gratitude. To express some kind of, some kind of, some kind of gratitude for what we have, and that that what we have is 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 not a, a, an accident. Sometimes, and I've sometimes written about this in the past in these terms, you know, the luck we have in a country like America, the luck we have in the West. Um, I quote towards the end of the war in the West, uh, perhaps a surprising source, um, uh, Branch Rickey. Um, once said something I'm very, very fond of. Once said, um, luck is the residue of design. Luck is the residue of design. If you're lucky today, it's not just that you've got the luck, it's that somebody else worked for you to get the luck. And in the West, a lot of extraordinary men and women worked to give us the luck of what we have. Is it perfect? Obviously not. But to throw it away and decide basically that we're going to start from year zero because we know so much more than all the people who've gone before us. But it seems to me not just be to display something like ingratitude, uh, but to do something we would soon swiftly realize is suicidal. Anyhow, maybe I've said something that will spark some thoughts from you, but I hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We do have time for some questions. That's a very well. I can give it, but it's a very specific answer to that. By the way, I think the books are complementary, aren't they? Yes. That's an important point to make, ladies and gentlemen, because because the books. No, no, no. It's fine. I'll answer your question. I will answer your question. But just before I do, I should point out, since the books have kindly been provided by the new Criterion. Um, Please do take them, because otherwise people will say you can't give them away. And, um, um, so look, um, as you said, it's a good question. Why did I move to New York? The, 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 the real answer is this. Um, what I'm describing, what, some of what I've laid out today and what I lay out in this book, is going on in my country of birth. It's going on in the UK, and I mentioned some of the examples. But the UK is just downstream from this. It's not the inventor of it. Um, when we get these sort of cultural revolutionary moments in the UK these days, it's only because we've got them from the US. Um, you'll notice that the French president last year, two years ago, said, um, we cannot import these American viruses. 
Um, we can't have it. And he said, nothing will come down in France, no monument, no statue. We need all of our past before us in order to work it out. But the point is this, not to abuse my host country, but look, most of my life and most of I think of our lives, America was a net importer of bad ideas. Um, the new criteria and others have, have, have chronicled this very adeptly for decades. You imported bad ideas, not least... I, we, can find, we can find a point of unanimity on this, at least, not least from the French. Um, but, but in recent years, that's changed. America has become a net exporter of bad ideas, so that anything that happens in this country swiftly goes absolutely everywhere else across particularly the English-speaking world. It's true that there are other countries that aren't English-speaking that get them a little bit further down the line, but, you know... It's in the summer of 2020, why do Canadians start attacking statues of Winston Churchill in Edmonton? It's not because of a, a local idea that's come up in Edmonton. It's because they're, they're, they're imbibing American ideas about the past and about, uh, about culture and history and what, what your attitude should be towards it. So I, basically I'm here because, firstly, it's much more interesting. And please don't quote me on that. Um, but secondly, secondly... Simply that this is, the U.S. is the fonts at Oregon of bad ideas in the 21st century. So if you're interested in bad ideas and trying to destroy them, you've got to be here. John, yes. Douglas, I would like to register a tiny disappointment with the book that you did not try to recycle Robert Conquest's coinage Hesperophobia. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was reading something recently, I forget where, it wasn't the new criterion. There's now a competitor neologism, uh, Occidentalism, mm. in homage to Edward Said, mm. Orientalism. Mm. Uh, do you not like these words? Do you not think we should have a, just a, a, single, uh, a single word for this? Hatred of the West, hatred yes. of the Yes, yeah, it, it would be good to agree on one. I, I, I thought that Hesperophobia didn't, I thought it was a little uh, tricky. I prefer Western anti-Westernism, because I just, I say, well, there's lots of anti-Westernisms in the world. There's Arab anti-Westernism, there's Chinese anti-Westernism, but the, the Western anti-Westernism is the real virus. Um, but uh, that's no insult to Robert Conquest, of course, who's an enormous admirer of Edward Said, by contrast. Um, uh, um, uh, I, I, I write about briefly in the book. Uh, um, very interesting, by the way. There's a, there's a section on Said which um, um, I take great delight in because, well, like you, I've had to imbibe the consequences of Said for most of my life. And um, it's very interesting for a writer who, who said that he didn't like essentializing, how, how, how much of it he does himself. Um, uh, Said, uh, in his most famous work, at one point describes the average 19th century European. Go, what was the average 19th century European, Mr. Said? I mean, who, who was it? Was it an aristocrat? Was it a mill worker in the north of England whose average life expectancy was 36? Who was it? He never tells us this. It's always that other people essentialize the East, but the West can never be essentialized. I also have great fun with the fact that Edward Said makes this extraordinary attack on Jane Austen at one point in one of his late works. And I was so pleased when I found this, because I like, 
I know lots of people in the UK in particular are never going to give up Jane Austen. And I don't think... Inter- I think internationally, if you start a fight with Jane Austen, you're going to lose. And you deserve to lose. <laughs> There's a lady at the back. Um, I, I love the topic. Thank you so much for talking to us about it. Um, I'm Mm-hmm. by some very deep forces on the left, but also on the right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, for instance, some, some deep healers of the West, like free speech, are under assault. And I never thought it would be controversial to say that, you know, as Walter, you know, the French Revolution was saying, I get your ideas, but I will, I will fight to the death so you can express them. Yes. I never thought this would be, you know, controversial. Yes. So, you know, given that it's coming from this country and from the West itself, how do we actually fight? Mm. Well, in a way, it's easier, isn't it? I mean, if you have a problem with internally, it, it, could, it could in some ways be just easier to deal with than if it was simply an external enemy doing the same thing. Uh, it's a very important, it's a very interesting question, though, because, um, uh, by the way, you know the, the new version of that, that maxim is, I um, disagree with what you say and so shut up. It's been refined on American college campuses, that maxim. Um, but, but, yes, that's another, another, another shorthand for it. I, I, um, but I, I think that, I think that, and I, I say in one of the interludes of this book, I, I think there's something fascinating which may be the wake up call we need in, in the West, which is when we see what happens when a ma- masochist meets a real sadist. Uh, we are real masochists in the West at the moment, and we're very, very happy to indulge it. And unfortunately, occasionally we meet real sadists. And let me give you a very quick example of where the, where the rubber meets the road there. Um, uh, last year at the United Nations, there was... Maybe we can get those doors open. Um, uh, last year at the United Nations, there was a, uh, a day called International Racism Awareness Day, which... I'm sure you all know, is one of those days where an enormous amount is achieved at the United Nations. Uh, just untold benefits to people worldwide. And um, at, at the International Racism Awareness Day at the United Nations, the new U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, made one of her first uh, appearances as ambassador. And in her remarks, she said that America was a racist country, that it had been racist from its beginnings, that it was born in sin... By the way, I mean, it's one of the things I sort of go into in this book. Like, what does that mean? And if you go down that line, who isn't? What isn't? Like, what country was born in Eden? I mean, this is a, again, it's this, it's a very strange thing which the anti-Westernists always have. And it's, I, I explain like Rousseau and others. They always use it as, they don't really care about the other. They just want to use the other to beat up the thing at home. But anyhow, um, Linda Thomas-Greenfield says all of these things about America. She talks about George Floyd. And she talks about the Asian spa massacre, which actually wasn't a racist attack, but she puts, chalks up as a racist attack at the floor of the United Nations. So she gives this uh, uh, speech, and at the end of the speech, she remembers to say something quite important, which is she says, oh, there is uh, racism elsewhere in the world as well. There's uh, the treatment of the uh, Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, uh, and there's the, uh, uh, the fact that a million uh, Uyghur Muslims are in concentration camps in China. Who is the next person up 
uh, on the floor of the UN, but the Chinese Communist Party's ambassador to the United Nations, who says, America has no right to talk to the Chinese people in this way. You have no right to lecture us. The American representative of the United Nations has done something unparalleled today. She has come and confessed her guilt and the guilt of her country. So we will not listen to you. Well, what a shot in the foot is here. And I'm afraid that this is where, as I say, you discover one of the places where self-criticism becomes self-hatred and in the end self-destruction. You know, um, since this book came out, a couple of interviewers have said to me, well, how do you delineate that line, Douglas? You know, how do you tell the difference between self-criticism, which is a good Western attribute? You know, again, I mean, it's, it's not a bad idea to keep criticizing and self-critiquing and seeing where we can improve and so on. But several people have said, well, how, how do you know the difference between that and self-destruction or, or, you know, somebody who's just basically wanting to abuse you? And I, I said to an interviewer the other week, I said, well, look, I mean, you know, you're not a bad interviewer and... Um, you're quite a good radio host. But if I said to you, um, look, there's this thing you could improve. Okay, and, I, and I, I really love your show. I like your show. But there's this thing you do. And you shouldn't do that, maybe. I said, you might listen to me. If I said to you, however, look, you've got a face for radio. But, <laughs> but, but you've not got the voice for it. You've not got the voice fit. You, you, you've, got, you've got horrible views and you, you don't seem to know anything and you're really terrible at your job. You just stink and nobody likes you and your bosses loathe you and the listeners loathe you and then you just, just tank it. Like, would you say, hmm, this is somebody whose criticisms I should take on board? Or would you think, I don't think this person wishes me well? So we all know that difference in our personal lives. We all know the people we will listen to in our lives who wish us well and wish us to improve. And we also know, when that's not the case, that we're not dealing with a critic who wishes us to improve. We're, wishing, we're listening to an enemy. I don't think that's so hard to discern. I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so not much. Not at all. <laughs>